And when it worked well for them, what they told us was that mediators gave them realistic so realistic information about what the likely arrangements would be and what they might kind of expect so that parents could make an agreement between themselves without needing to go to court. When that happened, they found that very helpful. Welcome to the Resolution Podcast. This month, we are taking a deep dive into mediation. We're joined by Joe O'Sullivan, Dr. John Simons and Rachel Chisholm. Please, could you each of you introduce yourselves for our listeners? Joe, could you go first, please? Hi, everyone. I'm Joe O'Sullivan. I'm, I've got my own practice, O'Sullivan Family Law, where I do almost anything but family court. So I, I'm a mediator, hybrid mediator. I do the one I'm the one lawyer process called Resolution Together. Shall I go on? I've got 100% cycling proficiency as well. I think I should mention that. Basically, I do anything but court. Uh, hi, I'm uh, John Simons. So I'm a senior lecturer in social work with children and families. I'm based at the University of Bristol and I've got research interests in uh, parents, family support and, and social work. It's lovely to be here. And do you have cycling proficiency? I did do cycling proficiency tests. I, I can't remember what my score was, but uh, I've managed to scrape a pass. Hello, everybody. I'm Rachel Chisholm. I'm a barrister and mediator at 4PB, and I'm also on the partners at the mediation space. We're a multidisciplinary uh, mediation provider, that, and our approach is underpinned by a psychotherapeutic understanding. I also have a master's from the Tavistock and Portman, which is how I brought everything together. Um, cycling proficiency. I'm, I've just bought a new bike um, because I've moved and I need to cycle. Otherwise, I can't get the bus and public transport. So I, I'm I'm working on it, Joe. Fantastic. Right, John, can we come to you first? And the particular research that you've done that we wanted to talk to you about is from November of last year, and it's about separating families and their experience of separation. And for our listeners, I will make sure that there's a link in the show notes so that they can get to the research easily. But in that research, you talk about um mediation and that part people who've participated in mediation and what their experiences were and i wonder whether first of all you could share your findings both the positive experiences and the negative experiences the participants had uh yeah, yeah of course um so i should say to begin with there's a project with uh, a number of colleagues at um Bristol University, and it was funded by the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory. And as you say, it was focused on understanding the experiences of families um, where the parents are separated and also their experience of support through that process. Um, so we spoke to 42 people altogether, including children, uh, as well as mothers and fathers. And there was a small group of them who had had experience of mediation, uh, so eight of them altogether. And when it worked well for them, what they told us was that mediators 
gave them realistic uh, sorry, realistic information about what the likely arrangements would be and what they might kind of expect so that parents could make an agreement between themselves without needing to go to court. And, and when that happened, they found that very helpful. When they didn't find it so helpful, it was related more to having a sense that the media hadn't recognised the, the, the kind of power dynamics between them. And, and in a, certainly one or two examples, um, there had been domestic abuse in the relationship and one of the participants talked about being kind of very scared and fearful in, in the meeting in other for other participants maybe where there wasn't domestic abuse there was there was some criticism about the potential for mediators to allow ex-partners to have unrealistic expectations about what would go into the agreement but then wasn't challenged that came up in different ways in a couple of couple of examples. Okay, there's so much that you've already told us that we're going to have to pick up on. Um, but before we start going over those those bits, how how's your research been received? Genuine generally, have you have you had any feedback about it? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been really. Um, really positive uh, and main the president of the family division has been very supportive of it and the findings um, the the team at the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory have been uh, brilliant in in getting the the findings kind of out into the public domain as well um, we've had the association of family therapists invite us to their annual conference to to speak about the findings um, there's been some some discussion in the mediation community as well, which is always good. I expect we'll be uh, talking more about that here as well. Thank you very much, John. I mean, Joe, Joe and Rachel, did you have any immediate um, sort of reactions to? Did anything surprise you that John said about about the research that they? No, I don't think uh, anything surprised me. I think what it did was it was just very helpful to hear directly from people after the after their experience and they've had a bit of time to process it and also live with the outcomes, both in terms of what they agreed, but also how what their experience was. So it's, it's really helpful because it helps us look back at our practice and think about where we need to rethink or, or strengthen and I think this power imbalance is the key is a key issue it's certainly something that coming back time and time again both in court and in the mediation setting it really needs a lot of thinking about particularly with coercive control but also when you're mediator you don't know what's happening in the background you can only do your best but you're letting people go back out into the world and you really need to be careful about that so I, I was just really struck by that the power imbalance being again something that kind of had left a bit of a an unsavoury taste, and where we can go from from here with that. Yeah, I mean, it, as a, as a social scientist, of course, my first degree was social science degrees. So I think, oh, it's quite a small small sample, but so was Freud's, and look at the effect Freud had on the world. So we'll leave it there. I mean, I think the thing that was was very interesting was the understanding that the participants had in what mediation was and what it wasn't. Very, that's very interesting to me, um, and also that they, that the mediator didn't propose viable solutions. 
which of course go to the very heart of what mediation isn't. And perhaps we can talk about ways that, that we could change that. So I think there were the things that, that popped out to me. We talk a lot about what mediation isn't, don't we? We say, or we yeah. say, oh, we're neutral. Oh, it's not binding. Oh, it's, you know, all these things. But actually, it does do some positive things. Not always, as you point out, John. But I think, we, you know, Calm really helped me appreciate what it does do. And it's kind of it, lots of things are trained out of us. But we'll come to that. But I suppose that brings us on to the the model that we've chosen to adopt if you like for for family mediation in in england mediation takes many forms as i understand it and is it takes different forms in civil practice to what it takes in family practice and for all i know may take different forms in other countries I, i i don't know but the model that we've adopted um do you what 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 are your th- thoughts about it, um, Rachel and Joe, particularly with the strengths and weaknesses of it? I think I think I think I left. I'm interested that everyone at the mediation practice also trained at resolution, and there is a kind of a bit about kind of perhaps we'll have a discussion about it, but kind of beating out of us the idea that we knew anything about it and that we we didn't have all the answers. We didn't have any answers, in fact, and that, yes. you know. So I find that quite interesting that that was. That's a big part of the model. And I can understand that because in in many ways we want the clients to be creative and we want the clients to really get into what's going on for them and and how can they move forward. Um, I think the other thing that I I also got the impression from from the training was that it was kind of optional whether you had an initial meeting with each of the couple on your own. And I don't think that should be an option. My very strong view that we must really get to know our clients on their own safely. We can talk to them about it. I, I don't. I don't think. I think even mediators have been quite blasé. I'm going to say that. Forgive me, but about domestic abuse, about controlling coercive behaviour. Perhaps all practitioners have. And if you get the chance, listen to Resolutions podcast on this um, with Jane Professor Jane Monkton Smith, which is excellent. I, I think also children we don't we don't bring children into it enough i mean if you ask and i think john mentions this in his research older children complained that they had nothing they weren't consulted they didn't know anything about it they were left in the dark and i think you know we've got to move away from that i'm I'm a generation you know where children should be seen and not heard really that was my upbringing and i find it very strange that anyone asks children anything but I, i can see the benefit of it because I think they've got to live their whole lives with the consequences of some of the things that we talk about. So I think I think if we were to start again, I think our model would probably be a bit more evaluative if it, if it were possible. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to Rachel. I mean, obviously, there's more there's more I could go into, but we'll come yeah. back to it. Well, Joe, I couldn't agree with you more. I think just leading on from the children point, it's so at odds with case law. We think about Baroness Hale talking about children you know, ask the children because often they're the ones that know and they're the ones that have to live it I think the child inclusive mediation model is actually a, a really positive way of doing it it's not you know, the children are on, you know, told that they're not their views aren't necessarily going to be passed on unless it's agreed it's, it's more about information sharing and I think that's crucial for, for children involved in this is to know what's going on then I was just thinking about the domestic abuse and power imbalance. I think I think that's right. I think 
people are too blase about it. And when we're thinking about, you know, initial assessment meetings, part of me is wondering whether they, they should be a mandatory part of any application, save for, of course, except exemptions. But they're important for the mediator and the participant talking through the issues. And Joe, your, your section in your book from Angela Carroll about all the different questions, fantastic, so helpful around just trying to get the information out of people in a way that is is open and accessible because often they might not realise themselves. And then just thinking in terms of moving forward from there, I think it's got to be a very careful assessment. And if we were thinking, what had a magic wand and what, what would we do? I think there needs to be a lot more support around the process. So I, I'd like to see a mediation pathway being adopted where people go fir- go first to something like the parenting together, but with a mediation, more information about mediation like they do in Australia. So what what is it to mentalise? What is it to think of somebody else's needs and in relation to your own? What is it to give something up? There's a lot there that I think people have no access to or understanding. And, and why should they? Our society's not built like that, as you say, Joe. We have seen and not heard from the beginning. And it, it's complicated, but there needs to be a lot more pre-work before the first mediation session, in my view. In terms of the, the findings of John's research, then, and what you've you've both been saying, you, you're, you're, you're both amazing lawyers who are mediators. Jo's pulling a face. She is an amazing lawyer who is a mediator. And the feedback from John's survey is that people wanted to be guided more. Do, do, you, do you feel frustrated that you you can't step in and guide more? Well, I think I think after you've been doing this job for a while, I do think it is possible to be a little bit more directive than we were trained. I think because if I don't think people who refer to me or the judges that look at the order at the end of the day are very are terribly impressed when my clients have come up with something that's completely outside of the shadow of the law that is completely won't be ordered. I mean, when it comes to children and stuff, it's quite interesting. I think in, in John's research that there would be some answer for the parents. But 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 generally there isn't. That's the problem. Parents can do what they like with the arrangements for children. You know, it's not that's not a legal matter. You can make it a legal matter if you want to, or you can go to arbitration and have someone else decide. But frankly it's up to you two. And we're going to work together and we're going to we're going to get to the bottom of that. But when it comes to the finances, we, there are some guidelines and I I think it's a disservice when I see mediated uh, um proposals that that frankly not worth the paper they're written on. John, can I can I bring it back? Um, can I bring it back to your research? Did your um, so there are two points to to pick apart here. First of all, there's the input in relation to children and what your research said about that, and then I and then I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about whether whether anyone mediated their finances that you spoke to. But let's let's go to the children point first of all. So yeah, definitely there was a really strong from the data of the children. I should say the what we asked people to do was to create kind of video reflections 
on the process. So we sent people digital cameras to make their own video recordings and then interviewed them online afterwards. And certainly children were kind of explaining to us the impact of this very much on their day-to-day lives. You know, could they, would they be able to ask one of their parents for a lift during the week? And would they have, you know, the bag in the in the right household? Those kind of things that, that you'll be familiar with through your own practice, I guess. There were, there were two examples in particular around children. There was a, a strong sense of wanting to be, both wanting to have a voice and to have that voice heard. And also for that voice to be believed that that was an ex- that that was a true expression of what they wanted. So there was one example of uh, of a young woman who had been saying quite consistently that she didn't want to see her father, which was against um, the the arrangement that had been set up, and and it was very difficult for her to um, to reach the point where that was taken on board and and agreed. Um, and and then the the other example that. That I, I, I really like because it kind of represents the kind of flexibility within arrangements that children really value. Um, is that although there was a there was an arrangement set up for this child to to visit uh, their their father, um, and it could have been it, well that the arrangement was set up on a I think it was a weekly basis um, for maybe kind of two nights a week. Or it might have been a fortnightly basis. But there was an agreement and enough cooperation between the parents that if if this child didn't want to stay both nights, then they were free to come back and only stay for one night because they felt more comfortable in their mum's home. Um, and actually, that worked very well, and and that that child was um, kind of very happy with those arrangements. So I think allowing for that flexibility within arrangements kind of really allows children to have choice even though they're not responsible for the overall plan or the overall decision. How old were these children? So the first example, I think she was 16. And second example, I think she was 11. Um, So there were, I mean, the youngest child that we included in the research was uh, six years old. And they were also able to describe uh, differences in you know, in the different arrangements that, that she had with uh, kind of staying in her mum's house and staying with her dad's house. That was, it was a relatively um, cooperative uh, arrangement that was set up and, and she'd been well supported by her parents through that, which I think was testament to her as well. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't let my six-year-old make decisions about how he's going to spend the time. No, but so... that six-year-old might want to make decisions about... Um, or there might be questions about whether they have suites in one particular house or, or the other, or whether they're allowed to watch YouTube. So I think the the parameters of decisions should be tailored to the age and the understanding mm. of the child, so that there's a yeah there's a kind of manageable level of uh, of choice that that child can have, um, and that, uh-huh. that's obviously dependent on individual circumstances. Thank you for that. Look, we diverted away from this question of the um, the model of mediation that we were asking you all to explore. And obviously, in in a financial case, you know, usually or, or, or often very effectively, you go out for FDR, whether that's at court or private FDR. 
and somebody tells you broadly what the um, answer is and nobody's got statistics on private FDRs, but they're thought to have very high settlement rates, much higher than the court settlement rates. So that's that's the question. I mean, everyone, everyone, I think, generally is supportive of that model, thinks that it's a good model. People get to negotiate around it, but they also get to know that they're broadly in the bracket of what they would get if they went to court. What, why aren't we doing that with children cases? Um, and I don't know who wants to go. Should we go the other way around? Rachel, what do you what do you say about this? Why isn't that the right model for children cases? I don't think it's not the right model. I think I'm just thinking why why aren't we doing it? And I think one of them must be sort of tactics in a way. I just think find this with arbitration. I don't know in terms of children arbitration. I find that seems to be much slower to be taking off as opposed to financial arbitration and f financial you know private fdrs because somebody often has a reason to keep things undecided and i think that's a very real sort of reality in terms of children proceedings for instance someone wants to go relocate the other doesn't want them to so i found that often people don't want to arbitrate that even though that probably should be arbitrated (laughs) so i think tactically there is that and then I think with the with the you know removal of any issues around safeguarding, I don't see why there couldn't be more of a stronger indication at a DRA and use it in, in a similar way to an FDR to, to give an idea of the parameters. I think it's just so difficult with children because it, it, the outcomes are far more variable when you go to final hearing. So in a way, it's reassuring to have an indication but I'm not sure that indication would mean very much to the parents, given the fact that the range of outcomes can be very, very varied in comparison to finances. And of course, what John was saying is is precisely why mediation is the gold standard method, I, I would think, for, for resolving children issues, if you possibly can, because you can sort out that real life lived experience stuff which is so hard to sort out in a in a court setting isn't it exactly Um, and mediation also the benefit is the mediator modeling communication and helping with the sustained ongoing uh, workable ways of communicating with each other and i think that's something that just obviously is is not possible within the court proceedings we talked at several points so far about, uh, and this, this came out of John's findings about the power imbalance, domestic abuse, etc. You you both mediate extensively. What what what's the best way of dealing with those issues as mediators? Do you think? I mean, from my perspective, I I work very hard at, at first of all finding out if what what the position is. So they get obviously they get. The book that I wrote, I might as well mention it, Almost Family, Almost <laughs> Anything But Family Court, which does have a paragraph that basically Angela Carroll inadvertently wrote, which asks them to ask those questions. Thanks, Rachel, for mentioning it. But also, uh, I, I, they, they also get a workbook before they, they come and see me, which is called Our Family in Two Homes, which is essentially a workbook for them to, and I'm the only person in this jurisdiction using it at the moment. I mean, I, I think that we prepare... I mean, I was thinking of this the other day, and I hope you, you leave this in the podcast, but I was preparing to go on a, on, a, on, a, on a conference, and I thought I wrote a little list of the things I needed to pack. 
And I thought, actually, I probably prepared more for my little trip than most clients going to mediation or going through these processes get. They're not prepared for it. They simply don't know what they're getting into and all the things they have to think about. So part of this, part of the workbook is for them to get an insight into, and Rachel will do more of this, I'm sure, but an insight into themselves and what their relationship was like. And clients say to me, I really didn't realise what my relationship was like. I really didn't realise that I had no control over the money. I didn't really realise that I wasn't allowed to see other people outside of our relationship. I really hadn't understood that that's where I'd got to. And more than that, they say, I've never really thought about the future for myself and the kids, if there are kids, because they've been so involved in in that relationship. And there's a dynamic there that obviously is obvious and, 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 and not and not novel. But I just I do think preparation is the key. And I suppose I've come to feel that I used to think mediation would be a good place for domestic abuse uh, survivors to kind of have their say. Uh, but now I've come kind of the other end. And I'm thinking now that mediation probably can't really protect them as well as I want want it to and I and I might even go so far as to say that probably we should just count it out I, and that's quite and I, I've really this I've changed I've been practicing for 12 years or so but it, it's quite obvious and, and actually if I introduce something that the kind of controller doesn't like mediation won't happen so for example uh, just an, uh, for argument's sake, oh, they've just stopped paying maintenance. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> All right, this is the individual meeting. And I said, that's interesting. Of course, you know, there's not just child maintenance. There's also spousal maintenance that or civil partner maintenance that might have to be paid and we'll have to think about that. Suddenly, they're out. So that's why I think being obvious and being open with clients about what to expect, they count themselves out. But John, of the people you spoke to, of the 42 people... Uh, how, how often was someone were they complaining of a power imbalance? You know, well, how often were they saying there was domestic abuse, and how often were they were they saying it's something less than that? But I don't feel that there's equality between us. So I, I have to be careful following Joe's point as well that it's not a study where we can generalise, even really within the sample about kind of more most people do this or um all that but what we can say is that when those things came up then the kind of ways that they came up and so i I can think now of um so there's the example of uh there was a woman who said that you know it was the, the the kind of worst hour of her life um being in the same room as her as her ex partner um there was a man who said that my ex-wife was always two steps ahead of me in any argument so I was always on a kind of losing footing in those meetings because things were happening uh, kind of too quickly for me to keep up with I can think of another example of of a woman who said that she knew that her ex-part what her ex-partner was saying should be in the agreement she knew that it was unrealistic and was wouldn't get agreed in court but she was frustrated that the mediator didn't challenge that and in the end it did go to court and that those expectations didn't get met in the final agreement and she cited that as an example of kind of what a 
really a waste of time and money that it was having to go through the court process where she felt that it could have been addressed kind of earlier than that. So there are some examples. In what, what do you say, Rachel? I agree with what, what Joe is, is saying in terms of the domestic abuse and the impact. I, I try and approach the mediation at the first stage by asking myself the question of do no harm. Um, I think you sort of think you have doctors approach things because what we do is really complicated. The, the people we work with are extremely complicated. And particularly when you're talking about, like you were saying, Joe, you know, the controller, you challenge their authority. And what does that mean? And you've, you've had um, Jay Monkton Smith on what, what does that mean? We don't necessarily know. I think though, there's two things. One, I'd like, in my magic wand uh, world as part of this mediation pathway is legal advice. I, I, people need to be given the same footing to address this power imbalance. Legal advice is, is crucial. It, I, I, I'd like to see people going on court, parenting course or something like that, getting some legal advice, having some input around how to mediate what it means and then start it. And I think we'd have a much better outcome. In terms of domestic abuse and mediation, I think there are a lot of other ADR alternatives, uh, including the one one lawyer, one um, couple that perhaps would be better suited in terms of that that issue because it's advice. Take it or leave it. See where you go that way. And I think on on that basis, what. It, we could use the information assessment meetings to signpost better, but I, I think there does need to be really careful thought about anybody that's making allegations of domestic abuse coming into mediation, even with shuttle, even with hybrid mediation, because you just the impact is can be so insidious and you just can't see it sometimes. And what what about that slightly lower? test you know it's not it's not domestic abuse but it feels like there's a huge power imbalance you know that's not an exemption is it you can't say to the court well uh, uh look i just never feel i'll be able to to um have equality here what what do you say about that can can mediation manage it or not? i think it can i think there's two ways one again it's about knowledge is power in a way for for people coming in if they've got the information if they know uh, sort of the range of outcomes. The mediator can provide information and information is actually very wide when you think about what is information. It's a lot wider than people realise. And also the rules say we can't let people go off on a frolic of their own and have uh, an outcome that no court would agree. So we do have quite a lot of parameters in which we can create uh, stability and safety around a power imbalance. Really, really interested in in what Joe was saying. Um, well, both of you were saying, but Joe Joe saying very explicitly that she's she's coming round to to question whether mediation is appropriate in cases of of domestic abuse. Is that to do, Joe, with with our or your evolving understanding of what domestic abuse is? And back yet again to to Jane Monkton Smith. I don't think everyone who heard that podcast or read her book has has had a bit of an epiphany, really. But, but this idea about control being at the centre 
of it. It's not about loss of control. It's about exerting control. Is that what's made you begin to question, Jo? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a it's been a, a journey, I think. Um, and I think I thought I knew what it looked like. I think I thought, well, it's obvious. Or and actually, even being very tolerant of some end of end of relationship abuse, it was normal. Yeah, that term "mild abuse" we've all heard. Yes, and and, and you know, I'm kind of I cringe a, a lot now. Really, I don't want to. Yeah, I'm. You know, like, yeah, it it does feel that we have a, a huge responsibility, as Rachel was saying. You know, our clients are vulnerable. It's a vulnerable time, and these particular clients are very vulnerable. And um, we have such a massive duty to protect them, and everything we do should be for that reason. And, and I think, yes, I have taken responsibility about trying to learn about it, and I have done more about it. What can I learn? What can I do? The resolution whole day course on domestic abuse. I mean. Do that course if you don't do anything else, because it will shock. I was going to say the hell out of you. It, I think it really will. You know, my my own research: one in four women are victims of domestic abuse. One in four. This isn't this is an epidemic. It's it's normal. This is normal, and yet we're kind of expecting them to hold their own in in mediation, and it's probably too much to ask. And so Rachel talked about the importance of of legal advice and being prepared. Um, and I, that's certainly my experience, that, that couples who go to mediation well briefed, not not briefed as in this is what you must ask for, but briefed as in this is the process, this is the range of what's possible and what isn't possible in a mediation context, are far, far more likely to come out of it successful. But how, how should lawyers approach mediation and, and what should they do to prepare their clients and to support them if it, to, to get the best outcomes? Well, the thought I had on this was that lawyers are obviously trying to get the best outcomes for their client. However, when we think about mediation, it's often what the couple come up with themselves that is the best outcome for them. And I think when you get an MOU back, or when you're you're preparing people for mediation, it's about not what could they get uh, a hearing uh, if they went to court. What could the best outcome? But what what is the what is the best interest for them and their family? How is that going to work for them and their family and and going forward? I think it's sort of a, the change in perspective is is really helpful for mediators from the lawyers in the background because what we what we find difficult is they come to mediation go speak to the lawyers come back and then actually it becomes quite adversarial whereas if it's more about well you know what's sustainable for you both what can you live with what's you know how did you come to this arrangement what were you thinking those sorts of approaches from the lawyers is is i think very helpful for the participants and it helps them think together. I think the way I think about it is interests, not positions. So what is everybody's interest that the children are okay? What is it? Those sorts of ideas are helpful for us. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think the best thing in the world is for clients to get legal advice. And the worst thing in the world is for them to get legal advice. Because actually in the same case, they will have very positional, quite different advice and well-meaning solicitors or, or lawyers who are just doing their job. But the problem is, where's the joint? Where, where, 
whose interests are they're just looking out for their client. They're not thinking about the whole family, as Rachel's suggesting. And no one is representing the children. I mean, nobody. They're the last thing. And yet that's what we're all supposed to be dominated by thoughts of them. And we're not. And I think also legal advice needs to be about getting to know your client. What's important to them? What are their values? That's, you know, it's a massive piece of work to do. And also the lawyer needs to be, if they can't do all of that, at least give a broad range of advice. You know, broadly speaking, you know, within this these sort of realms is what you want to be looking at. Not so positional. If I can ask a question as well um, about how much kind of what the balance should be about the availability of information provided by lawyers, but also made publicly available. Um, one thing that we heard quite often was how difficult it was for family members to find information about the process before they entered into a process. Um, they they liked the, the, uh, the child maintenance calculator in general um, on the UK Gov, Gov UK website because it was it was reliable it was trustworthy it gave them broadly enough information to to start making or talking about making their own arrangements and I think what that there's a real explosion of interest and, and activity now I think in making lots of information available Joe's book I think is a great example of that I've read that over the last couple of days um learned a lot about myself and just having that kind of information available I think it will be really welcomed by a lot of parents even before they make a decision about kind of whether to engage professional support in that as well but I'm not a lawyer so I'm you may have other views I'm not sure no I think we've the more information the better I think from from the beginning to the end I think I mean I understand that the first port of call for people is lawyers often but there must be a way of communicating the information about all their other options before they reach that stage and I think the book John your your research talking about separation not being one event it's you know it's a whole continuum of decisions and back and forth and and then professionals involved along the way gps schools we've got to get everybody sort of involved and knowing it's a it's a difficult but it needs to be a big outreach sort of multidisciplinary project yeah uh, i agree um and because people are at different points in that process different times i think that also speaks to working with people on an individual basis according to what their need is at that point whether it's arranging counselling or whether it's arranging information or whether it's mediation or, or solicitor. Um, yeah. Can we, um, can we look at that point in more detail, this point about timing, um, which both John and Joe mention, I think. What, what is the right time for people to be engaging in uh, mediation and let me come to you first, Rachel, seeing as you haven't written about it already. I was going to say, I, I think we're in, in the presence of two experts on this. Uh, what I, in my experience, 
is the right time. And I think Joe's uh, Joe hits on this so well in their book is when people have had some time to just take a breath, have a think. Um, what I've been finding in with the mediation space and, and my own practice is that we actually get a lot of people after the first hearing. So after the Fahadra, after the FDA, because I feel that people often just need to go to court, see what happens and realise there's a different way. And actually, I think there's a lot of push in the in the court system to, to for judges to say, you know, try mediation, try this, try and settle. And that is filtering because we are seeing people who are thinking, actually, this isn't the right approach for me and my family. So often we're finding after the first hearing seems to be working quite well. I mean, certainly I'm often of the view that for financial mediation, the, the optimum time to do it is after a disclosure process has taken place, which might be why you get those post-first appointment. I mean, whether the disclosure takes place in court or, or not in court is sort of dependent on, on the people involved and whether you think it'll happen uh, voluntarily or not. But it, it can be useful to cross that hurdle and evaluation and all the rest of it hurdle. And then mediation. the mediator has the same information that the FDR judge, the final hearing judge or whoever would have. You know, you're not spending the first five meetings chasing bank statements and trying to work out what the family home's worth. That work's been that work's been done. It always strikes me as a massive waste of a mediator's time, really, to leave them with all that to do. Don't know, Richard. I'd, I'd agree, and also with the safeguarding letter, if people wait for that to see what where are we going, what's what's the path most likely to be, and and what are we going to do ourselves? Well, That's it, getting the disclosure. And actually, I'm thinking a little bit the way that the mediation space works with with others I, I do think that it's essential that mediators don't it's not a, it's not a solo sport and I'm just wondering if if clients worked with an independent financial advisor or financial neutral get all their papers together get the pension stuff together work out do they need a pod or not you know that kind of stuff and then come to mediation because actually it's quite a lot of my time to kind of get these 4b bundles together do a spreadsheet you know actually it would probably be better if someone who did that every day did that. I mean, I do do that every day, but in some ways I'm wondering if I ought to work with, you know, other professionals. And Melka in, in Australia, Melbourne, I think you know that model where they they have a triage person who says, okay, what you need at this stage is this. You need to go and do counselling therapy. What you need right now is to have some understanding of the finances. Okay, go and do that. And it's not it's not more expensive. It's just different. What's the right time, John, for people to access mediation? I mean, my immediate thought is when they're both ready, if and when they're both ready. And you know, it makes me think of some of Van Barlow's work around you know, people needing to be emotionally ready to engage in mediation if that's the right thing for them at that time. Um, you know, we, we've been hearing about some of the some of the difficulties that can arise when people when there's those power dynamics or people don't want to engage. Um, but also, you know, if people need to, uh, we we also had examples of people saying, "I got counselling and that was brilliant," 
and actually it was through counselling that we were then able to make our own arrangements. We didn't need to, to work with any other professional, but I just had that space to pro process kind of what I was going through after the separation. So I'm, I'm a little bit um, cautious about the idea that that we should kind of bring everybody to to mediation as the kind of the central place to to get everything sorted because what might work for for one couple might not work for for other couples. And there's a, a lot of pressure, isn't there, from from government from judges saying, you know, we need to declutter the family courts, we need to get more people out of court and into mediation. And certainly when Grant Shapps was the was the minister recently, he 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 was consulting with a view really to 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 making it possible for, for judges to direct couples into mediation. I, I think that's probably less prominent in in the thinking now. But given what you've all been saying about the importance of timing and being mentally prepared, uh, do any of you think that court-directed mediation could ever work? Well, I've, I've written a whole article for the family, the family, uh, the financial remedies journal about how fantastic compulsory mediation would be. So I, I'm not sure I can go back on that now. But but in some ways, yes, because I did a um, and and some other volunteers in in Brighton did. Uh, we went to this is some years ago, and we went to the court on Children's Day, and with or without a CAFCAS officer, I think, but probably without the CAFCAS officer. And we literally all the cases came in front of the mediators, and we had an eighty-five percent success rate. Mainly because we were all lawyer mediators, mainly because the parties had either issued the wrong case at the wrong time about the wrong thing. And we could help them kind of work out because we were lawyers. We could actually work out what they were trying to do. Uh, and also they had absolutely no idea about what they were doing. They just kind of issued. And, and I think the problem is that the court is full of poor people. I mean, financially poor people. You know, it's a massive percentage since the, since legal aid has been gone. People don't have any safety nets. There's nowhere to go. They've got, they can't get legal advice unless there's been domestic abuse. And even then, it's not so easy. So they're just going, okay, I, I've seen it on TV. I'll go to court. So, you know, this is a really difficult, it's not a simple answer, I don't think, but I hope that's helpful. It, it makes me think of, because that's a really interesting account that you're given there. It makes me think that I don't agree that court order mediation uh, is a good idea but I do think that the information and assessment meetings need to be far more prominent and perhaps those could be mandatory because as you're saying people they don't know <laughs> they don't know what they're issuing they're what they're doing what their options are and there does need to be some kind of centralization around that information provision but I think my concern with the court order mediation is is firstly you don't know who you're ordering into mediation again the idea that a couple who aren't suited for it go to mediation and harm is caused and secondly there are lots of other ADR options that are better suited to to different couples and people need to be able to make that choice so rather than ordering court ordered mediation then access either to mediation or or legal help 
you know, back back to to where we were uh, yeah. before it was taken away. But you know, having that access to that initial advice with a solicitor for everybody would um and because we're a podcast, no one can see this, but everyone is nodding furiously yes. at me as I say this, that what we what we really need is for everyone to be able to have that option, some early advice with a solicitor, know whether mediation's right for them, know whether the court's right for them, or or whether they can just sort it out without those things. All right. Yeah. yeah. Prevention rather than cure or something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. Also it's it's deeply depressing, you know, uh, John I mean we all might I mean you know people who have adverse childhood experiences, you know, otherwise known as ACE, you know, these are massive traumas that people have experienced in childhood. And they're the kind of people who really need to have someone helping them along the way. They mustn't be left on their own. The neutrality of the mediator probably won't be helpful for them because they need someone to hold their hand, quite literally. So it's a scandal that they don't have that. We're talking about moving to settlement then, because, um, I don't know, one, one perceived problem with family mediation, I think, is that is, is that people don't have an incentive. And, and perhaps this, this is um, what Rachel was talking about earlier to do with, you know, not, not going in with specific, with a specific outcome in mind, but going in with a mindset. But in, in civil mediation, as I, as I understand it, the mediators are quite, uh, quite directive and are very much saying to the clients you know you need to do a deal at this point because if you don't you are going to go to a trial and you are going to spend x many hundreds of thousands of pounds on legal fees and that would be ridiculous so you need to do a compromise it doesn't appear to be that sort of stick i suppose uh in a family mediation context so when 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 couples are, are stuck uh, perhaps because they've each had legal advice that tells them that they're right and the other person is wrong or just because they're stuck. How, how, how do you want to stick them and how do you how do you get them moving towards settlement? Really interested to know. Okay, well, various things work and you never know what's going to work, actually. So, so for example, introducing the idea of a, of a parenting coach, somebody who, who might help one parent the so-called problem parent um with parenting and report back and they say oh no we don't need that actually we're, we're okay <laughs> it's not that so sometimes by introducing and, and i'm very keen on uh, an early neutral evaluation actually where something's quite uh, perhaps legally interesting uh we say legally interesting which means expensive doesn't it uh, legally expensive so you can say okay we'll get somebody else in trust of land particularly um very important, I think, to introduce that idea early on because people will spend an awful lot of money, perhaps usually not very much at reward. And often that's enough for them to say, oh no, actually we can we can sort something out because we don't want to spend the extra uh, the extra money on that. Uh, and also, you know, the idea that you know there is an alternative to court, you know, there is arbitration where someone is there's no shame that they can't make a decision sometimes. Sometimes they just can't, and that's okay. An arbitrator can do it for them, but I think, but I think we need to be wary of kind of strong arming people into sort of settlement ideas because a because they've got to live with them, and that you know if it's not really something that they really wanted to sign up to, they just kind of run out of energy. I think that sometimes that happens, and then it's just going to unravel. So it's a kind of delicate balance, I think. I want to say as well that. 
there will be some uh, some situations where court is the right place to to get a resolution uh, or, or to get an agreement, and 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 I think we're all saying that uh, there's. There's scope for lots more development in the pre-court space to try and support families going through separation and to reach agreements. But when people are really stuck, then the court is there to provide that that kind of legal clarity around what, what the agreement can be. So in, in the right situations, um, and when people have tried different things, and, and generally parents talk to us about going to court was the last resort and they tried to avoid it as much as they could um maybe they didn't know all the possible options that there were um but but it should i think it should still be on the uh on the table as a as a last option and um, because for for some situations yes even, absolutely even joe's book is called brackets almost close brackets yes. anything but and i think that that Absolutely, John. I I really agree with that, and I think it's unfortunate that the court system is in, you know, with delays, etc. Because it has a function; it has a very useful and important societal function. And I appreciate that, whilst it might seem that these disputes around, you know, Sunday night to Monday, forty five percent, they might you know, seem resolvable to others. But what we're dealing with is people who've got early early childhood experiences, the experiences in the relationship, the dynamic, it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult to unpick and, and help people think through those things. And sometimes they just need an answer. They just need to be told. And that, that there's no shame in that at all. Before we close, do do each of you want to share with us some some closing insights about mediation either how it should be changed or what people should do if they're thinking about it or or anything positive about it so uh there is a lot positive about it i think we all we all agree it's the gold standard uh it's just that our discussion has gone into to you know so much about what what could be reformed about it but let's start with you joe hmm I think mediate I think the mediation world needs to be a little bit less precious about the way we work. I think we created so many rules and so many ways of so many restricting ways of working that I think it's not helpful. And I think I remember Stephen Sulemeyer, who's a Californian mediator. He 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 was just training us and he was saying, oh, I picked up, somebody said to me and I just picked up the phone. I said, what do you mean you picked up the phone? He said, well, I picked up the phone and I sorted out their problem for them. I said, really? I was thinking, we would never do that. That's because we're so precious about it. I just think we need to be more helpful and less standoffish. And just do whatever that takes, be creative, early neutral, early, early, you know, all the things we talked about. I, I agree. I think the beauty of mediation is the, license to be creative both for the the participants and for the mediator and I'd, I'd like to see a lot more collaboration between different areas of of the law mediation therapists ifas uh poets everybody just that trying to be creative to to help uh people in a, in a really difficult time of crisis where they're struggling to think 
And I, I think the other thing to say is that as mediators, we mustn't forget how difficult this job is and the powerful power of, of people's um, ways of communicating and relating that perhaps aren't verbal and to the, the importance of, of your own boundaries and looking after yourself in a mediation process because it's it's really tough and I think perhaps it's not given quite as much credit for that. I mean, we think that mediation can play a really important part in a broader kind of safety net of support for families going through separation and having information available in an accessible way that's in that's accurate from a trustworthy source and also that there's advice and support available in different community settings you know some of the developments around the family hubs model in some local authorities are offering support to families where the parents are separating and whether there's some synergy between kind of legal advice mediation counseling community settings so that so that families can access them kind of when they need it or whatever Thank you. Um, You've all given us such a lot to think about. It's uh, really appreciated. And to our listeners, if you like what you've listened, uh, please leave us a review.